Nehemiah chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Maljit, I did practice this before I got here. Pardon me. Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for who he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go. Eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions. And to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe, that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths, during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booze, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily, from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Well, would you join me in prayer? Father, we come to you and we thank you, our God and our King, for your favor toward us, undeserved as it is. We thank you, Father, for how richly you have blessed us with every blessing that uh, we could conceive. 
And God, how you have so well provided for us. God, we could not have, if it were left to us to write this out and to try to define what Christianity would look like, uh, the story would look different. And it would be such a work of fiction, so outlandish. But God, the things you say are wise and pure and holy. And yet even there, God, we would not believe that it would all be true except that you tell us that it is. It's so marvelous. God, we blush when we stop and think about how good you are to us in spite of how wicked we have been. God, the provision you've made, the covering that you've made in Christ Jesus to deal with our sin and to not just cover it up, but to atone for it and to put it away, but to cover us with righteousness, to make us acceptable in Christ Jesus and and to bring us near to yourself. God, we God, we don't deserve it, but we do praise you for it. God, we pray that as we come before your word this morning, that like the people in Nehemiah's day, God, hearing the word read, we pray, God, that we would be attentive and that we would be um, ready and willing to adjust our lives to what you say. They, they read that they were supposed to put together booze, and so they went and they did that. They saw things of which they should repent, and they did that. They, they heard that the day was a holy day and they shouldn't be grieved on that day. And so they adjusted themselves. God, we pray that you would find that kind of readiness and willingness in us. Father, we think of many who are sick and still struggling with illness and others who have recently become ill. God, we lift them up to you. We ask God that you would use even this for their good and that you would meet with them in their sickness and that they would find you to be a very present help in time of trouble. We pray for John as he continues to labor in Canada and we pray God that the time spent there and the things shared with those men would bear eternal consequences and that you would use it to not only help these pastors, but God, that it would also be of help to those churches and to the people outside those churches as the gospel goes forth from those places. God, we are glad to know that we serve the God of all creation and not a local deity, that as we've gathered this morning to worship, people all around this globe on this day have arisen to worship and they all look toward you and God your attention is toward every one of them at the same time and none of them lack your attention because your attention is elsewhere God we add our voices to the voices of so many others this morning who look to you and praise you God we are depended upon you but God that's such a glorious place to be we pray God that you would come and meet with us for your glory and for our good we ask in Jesus name Amen well I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Philippians we will get back to Nehemiah in a bit but I do want to start this morning in Philippians and I'd like to take up a theme. I'm kind of shifting gears a little bit. I was supposed to have preached last week and this week, Sundays. And uh, I was sick. Well, actually, Elizabeth was sick last Sunday. And um, th- it just didn't work out that way. So AC filled in and preached. And I'm glad he did. But now AC's sick. So we're kind of taking turns. Um, so that's you know, lots of people sick right now. But anyway, providentially, things happened. And plans changed, and so going in a slightly different direction this morning, I found that one of the hardest things to, to prepare for is kind of a one-off sermon, if you understand what I mean. Like on Wednesday nights, we're going through the book of Philippians, one verse after the next. And so, you know, at, when Wednesday night ends, there's still work to be done for the next sermon, but there is not the question, where are we going next? What's the next verse? But when you have just kind of a, a one-off thing, then 
one of the biggest hurdles for me anyway is you pick up the Bible and you look and you think, all the things that could be said, which one? <laughs> you know, there's just so many things. So, um, slightly different direction this morning. Um, and I'd like to use the book of Philippians to help get us started. And what I want to do is not take a specific verse, but I want to take a theme that the book of Philippians raises. So I believe it will be helpful for us this morning, but also be helpful as we continue through the book of Philippians on Wednesday nights. And the theme is the theme of joy. The book of Philippians has a lot to say about joy. It's been uh, a number of, of people have considered the book of Philippians to be you know, a book about joy. Um, Paul tells us of his circumstances and how he meets those circumstances with rejoicing. He turns to the Philippians. He urges them to rejoice. And so just again and again, you see joy running through this little letter. And I think it would be helpful to stop and consider exactly what does Paul mean when he says that he's rejoicing or that the Philippians should rejoice. And how do you rejoice when circumstances are terrible and you're in prison and facing possible death and this, this rejoicing precludes sorrow? Does rejoicing mean you can't grieve? You know, just a number of things that I'd like to kind of address this morning. And I want to tell you up front, I'm painting with broad strokes. All right, there's a lot more that could be said there. Uh, I found that Richard Baxter has written a lot about joy, as has, um, I just went blank, somebody else, I'll think of it in a moment. Um, but a number of, of the Puritans have written about it and written extensively as they do. So there's so many things that could be said. I'm not filling in all the fine details. I'd like to give you a bit of a foundation perhaps to think more about this and again to be helpful to us as we address maybe some of the details on Wednesday nights as we get to the verses that deal with this. So I want to begin in Philippians with just this idea or this, this truth that we do see and that is the command to joy or to rejoice and it comes in several different places. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Rejoice. But he's writing it again. He actually has already said it in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And he gives a bit more context there to rejoicing. In chapter 3, it's just the command rejoice. But in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So he speaks here in terms of, of a sacrifice, an offering being poured out. And he's filled in some of the details of that in chapter 1. And we're not going there right now. But there he talks about the circumstances that he's dealing with and how he does rejoice in them. Now to the Philippians, you too in the same way rejoice. He has said in chapter 1 and verse 30 that they're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And now here to be in me. So they're also facing some hard times. And there he calls them to rejoice. And then one of the place, and that is in chapter 4 and verse 4, one of those verses that you probably are very familiar with. Twice in verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, every one of those are a command. They are imperatives that he's writing. This is what you should do. And not just Paul's command, if you will, but God writing through Paul Rejoice. Rejoice, Christian. And it's not just Paul. And it's not just Philippians. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, as the, the disciples come back and they have found uh, the demons subject to them, Jesus said, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice. 
Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 Rejoice always. And 1 Peter 4.13 But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Now those are every occurrence where that particular word is given to us in Scripture, in the New Testament, as a command. There are other commands to rejoice, uh, to, to, to leap with joy. Um, but the words are different, and I just looked up that one. So that, that's one. But every one of those are a command to rejoice. And Peter, in the New American Standard, as it translates Peter, adds a little bit of a wrinkle to it, or some information, that you could apply to every one of those occurrences. Peter is translated this way in the New American Standard. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. And that is the idea that's in every one of those commands. It's not just rejoice once and be done, but keep on rejoicing. Keep fighting to rejoice. Don't stop rejoicing. That's the command that comes. Now, individually and in their individual context, we could probably learn a number of different things about rejoicing as we looked at each of those verses and how it's applied in that situation. But we don't have time really to do that this morning, and that's not what I want to do. But rather, collectively, I think there are some things that we can learn from these verses. The, the weight of those, I hope, hit you that again and again and again, the Scriptures command us to keep on rejoicing. And there are some conclusions that we can draw from even one of those commands to keep on rejoicing and certainly from multiple commands to keep on rejoicing. And the first one is this. Believer, joy is not optional. It is a command. All of those verses were not suggestions. They were commands from God to keep on rejoicing. So joy for the believer is not something that is, one writer said, it's not the garnish, it's the entree. It's not the, the icing on the cake. You know, here's this wonderful cake, and it's going to be good all by itself, but we're going to put some icing on it and make it even better. Joy is not the icing on the cake. It is an essential ingredient in this cake. Joy is not optional. It is commanded to the believer. And not just in the New Testament. There are many, many verses in the Psalms. Let me give you just three in, in the Old Testament. Let me give you three from the Psalms. Psalm 97, 12. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to His holy name. Now, the word joy is not there, but it is the idea. Be glad. Rejoice. Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And again and again the command comes, rejoice, rejoice. And the Old Testament saint had reason to rejoice, but New Testament believer, you have so many more reasons to rejoice. 17th century English Puritan John Howe wrote this. Settle this persuasion in your heart. Be persuaded about this and, and settle it in your heart. That the serious, rational, regular, seasonable exercise of delight and joy is a matter of duty to be charged upon conscience from the authority of God and is an integral part in the religion of Christians. Settle this. It is serious. It's rational. It's not illogical. It's logical. It's rational. The regular exercise of joy is a matter of duty. Charged to conscience from God's Word. Richard Sibbs said that joy is that frame and state of soul that all who have given their names to Christ either are in or should labor to be in. You should be there. If you're not, labor to get there because it's a duty that's yours. It's a command that God has laid upon you. Rejoice. Now, you may be tempted to think 
that joy is a matter of temperament. Some people are just naturally happy, and some people are more sour, you know? And if my temperament was more like that person's, then I would be a joyful person. But that's just not the way God made me, right? It's His fault. Well, no, even to you, the command comes, rejoice. Or we can think, well, if, if my life was situated more like that person's life, then I would rejoice. But my life is built more like this, and circumstances are like these, and that's an unreasonable thing. Uh, before you say that, remember who you're talking to when Paul writes this. It's Paul who is suffering, who writes, rejoice. So we really can't say those things. Joy is not optional. And that fact that joy is not optional is a wonderful and sweet reality because if it's not optional, if God commands joy, then it follows that, number two, joy is possible. God doesn't command us to do what He doesn't provide for. So I'm not saying that you've got it within you and if you can just work it up, you can be joyful too. I'm telling you that God is so good and His provision is so great that even you, whatever your circumstance, whatever your temperament, you can know joy if you belong to Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1.3. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Now, if God has commanded you to rejoice, then surely it's a matter of godliness that you do rejoice. And if it's a matter of godliness that you rejoice, then He, by His divine power, has provided for you so that you can rejoice. God supplies what He commands, and He has provided for you, Christian, to be able to rejoice. I don't mean giddiness. I don't mean slapping on a fake smile, one of those plastic smiles, you know, and you walk around all the time with this fake smile. I don't mean that. I don't mean that you always have to, you know, I, I'm not being, talking about being fake at all. That, that'd be worse. That'd be awful. I'm saying that God has provided for the believer to know true, lasting joy. So joy is not optional, one. Two, joy is possible. Three, joy does not exclude sorrow or grief or other hard things. The Apostle Paul, as he writes about rejoicing and being glad, I don't think that he means for a moment that he feels no sorrow, that he feels no grief. He talks about how there are people who are preaching Christ, trying to do him harm. Surely that grieves him. Their motives are not pure. Surely that grieves them that they're, they're doing the right thing for the wrong motive. And God's not getting all the glory that He should from them, even though the gospel is going forth and He rejoices that Christ is being preached. We can know sorrow and still know joy. A Christian funeral is a time when we know real sorrow. There's grief. We don't grieve like those who have no hope, but we grieve. And we can still rejoice that God is king and that there is provision for the soul of the believer and that this is not the end. We can sit at the, at the bedside of a loved one who's sick and, and hurt for them and rejoice that God is a great physician who can heal all hurts. We can watch loved ones make stupid decisions and grieve for them and hurt for them and still rejoice that God is king and can still redeem those who wandered far away. We can know grief and sorrow and joy at the same time. The two are not mutually exclusive. And to know one is not to say, I cannot possibly know the other. So the command to rejoice is not inconsistent with also sorrowing with those who sorrow. Hurting when others hurt. But you have to think correctly about joy to not come to wrong conclusions about it like that. 
You have to start at the right place and not the wrong place. If you start at the wrong place, then you often arrive at wrong destinations, don't you? Some months ago, I can't remember if it was this summer or last summer. I think it was this summer. I was going to meet Ken in Tupelo to pick up something. And we agreed on a meeting place. And I went to, to Lowe's. And it was hot outside. And so I went inside the building. And they had a patio set, you know, set up for demonstration right inside the door. So me and the boys just sat down there. And I uh, texted him, let him know we're there. And he texted and said, well, I'm here. And so we're like, where are you? Where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm right here inside the front door. And uh, he's like, well, I'm, I have to come to the door. I don't see you. So I walk out the door. I'm looking around the parking lot. I come back to the door. We go around and around. And finally, I'm like, are there two Lowe's in Tupelo? And he said, uh, I said, Love's, not Lowe's. And uh, oh, you know, I'm at the wrong place. If you, if you start with kind of the wrong thing in mind, you end up with wrong ideas. And so if we have wrong ideas about what joy means and what God means by joy, we're going to arrive at some wrong conclusions. Joy is possible. It does not exclude sorrow. We need to realize that there is, as the Bible says, a time to weep and a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn and a time to dance. We are, as Romans 12, 15 says, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to, to weep with those who weep. And we can do both. The command to rejoice does not mean that we can't feel sorrow or hatred of sin or grief over loss. But it does mean that we're to know joy. One other conclusion drawn from this command, the fact that these commands exist, and that is that joy is not automatic. If it were automatic, then there wouldn't be the command to rejoice. It'd be automatic. God wouldn't have to say it. It'd just be there. But it isn't automatic. And so keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. Now, that's the command. I'd like to turn your attention next to the nature of true joy. Again, we want to think correctly so that we arrive at correct conclusions. And so we need to think about exactly what do we mean when we talk about having joy in the Lord or of rejoicing. There is true joy, but there's also a counterfeit joy or a false joy. We can have joy in the wrong things and it feel very much like joy. But then there's also joy in what's real and lasting and worthy of joy. But before we define true and false joy, first think about what is joy itself. Let me give you a couple of quotes and then we'll try to pull together maybe a definition here. The first one is from Thomas Manton. Thomas Manton says, All joy arises from the presence of some good, either in actual possession or in firm expectation. There's something good, and I have it, and I have joy over that, or I expect to get it, and I have joy over that. One other fellow, Jeremy Pierre, writing in Tabletop magazine. He writes, joy is always responsive. It's a response. It's not some permanent rank we earn or status we attain. Joy is more fluid than this. A response to something good happening. Or we could say something a person perceives as good. And that's an important distinction. We perceive it to be good. So, putting all that together, joy is a response. It's not something we manufacture. It's a response to something external, something we have or something we expect to have. It is an expression of delight in something we have or expect to have. Kids go to bed on Christmas evening in anticipation of Christmas morning. They go to bed with joy for something they don't have yet. They get up in the morning and they have a different joy, we hope. Um, but then the third part of that is, it is an expression of delight in something we perceive as good. And that is an important distinction, especially for those who are outside of Christ. Because so often we're guilty of calling good evil and evil good. So that you have people celebrating wickedness. You have you know, a woman who celebrates her abortion. A man celebrates a conquest. 
and other things like that. You know, there, there's uh, what Philippians 3 talks about glorying in shame. And Paul warns about following that pattern. So it is a pattern that can be followed not only by the unbeliever, but by the believer. Because he writes to the Philippian saints and says, follow my pattern, not that pattern. There are those people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. They glory in shame. Their God is their appetite. Their, their end is destruction. Watch out for them. If we look at what is evil and we wrongly perceive it as a good resulting in joy, then our joy is false or counterfeit. We find joy in that which we should not find joy. So true joy, godly joy, depends on a person's ability to delight in the right things, to see what's good, to perceive it as good, and to delight in it. I cannot help but think back again to Philippians chapter 1 as Paul prays for these Philippian saints in verse 9, 10, and 11. He says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. He asked God to give them knowledge and discernment so that they can approve what's excellent. How are you going to know what's excellent? How are you going to know what's praiseworthy? What's worthy of joy? God, give me knowledge and discernment. I lack. Give it to me. And so he prays that for them before he gives them the command to rejoice. And then... After giving that command twice in Philippians 4, verse 4, in verse 8, he writes, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Why is he telling them to dwell on those kinds of things? Because their heart is going to delight in the kinds of things that they do dwell on. And so dwell on these things that are real and true and pure and good. So that you look at those things and you see them as lovely and your heart finds joy there. Another way to say this is this. True joy is the response of delight to what God delights in. If God delights in it, there's something worthy of delight. And if God doesn't delight in it, I don't care how it makes you feel. It's not worth delighting in. It's wicked. It's corrupt. It's sinful. And if you find joy there, it's a joy that is to be repented of. That is how Paul is responding as he responds in the first chapter. As he describes his circumstance. And now I will mention it. He's imprisoned. He's chained to a soldier around the clock. He's been in prison for anywhere from two to four years at this point. He doesn't know if he'll be freed or executed. And not only is there this fact that he's in prison, but there are people who profess the name of Christ who are preaching the gospel hoping to do him harm the Philippian saints are confused Paul how is it with you and part of the reason he writes is to let them know this is what's happening but I'm rejoicing and this is how you should respond too because he cares for them and how they respond all of this is going on how does he look at all that and say I rejoice and I will rejoice well it's because he values what God values the gospel is going forward Yes, I'm in chains, but, but most of the people in Rome understand that my imprisonment is an imprisonment in the cause of Christ. He sees all that, and he values what God values. And because of that, he has joy, even though most people would sit where he's sitting and think, you know, this is terrible. God, you still love me. How could you do this to me? Let me move on. The next thing I'd like to point your attention to regarding this is the source of true joy. 
And I think it's an important distinction because you don't get joy, even true joy, by chasing joy. Joy is not the pers- what you pursue. It's not even the goal. It's a byproduct. Chasing joy leads to frustration. And you've felt it before, surely. I mean, from the time we're children, we, we run into this. You see some little thing that you're sure that would be so great to have. You ever, you ever stood in front of one of these bubblegum kind of machines, you know, and they've got all those plastic pieces of junk in it? And I can remember doing this. I see my kids doing this. Oh, I need that. Put your 50 cents in, right? And so you do, and that little thing comes out. Oh, it's so great. Ooh, your life's wonderful. And before you get home, it's broken. It's, it's junk. And you, where did the joy go? It's gone. And we continue to do it as adults. It's just bigger toys and, and you know, other relationships or pleasures or whatever. We chase and pursue and think, that's the thing. And we're pursuing joy. But joy is not an end in itself. It's a byproduct of pursuing something greater than joy. Real joy comes not from pursuing joy, but from pursuing God. Amy Carmichael called joy a settled happiness. Settled because for the Christian, the source is Settled. It's not settled because of what we see around us or of what's happening to us, but because of faith. God is good and He's on the throne and that's settled. It's not simply optimism. It's optimistic, but it's optimistic because of who God is. It's not just some vague notion that everything is going to work out. But it looks with eyes of faith to the God who loves us and who will bring about our best, the best for us, in line with His own glory. We see this played out in a number of places. One is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 with King Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat and the army of Judah are in trouble as several different armies have leagued together to come against them. And humanly speaking, there's nothing for them to do except lose. There's no human way to look at the situation and reason. We got a chance here, you know, if only this. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, you do the only thing that you can do. You pray, you call out to God. And so he does. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 12, he prays and he's honest. He says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do. God, we don't have a clue. We're powerless. But his prayer doesn't end there. His prayer ends with optimism. It ends with faith as he looks to the God who can do. And he prays, but our eyes are on you. We don't have any hope looking out there, but our eyes are on you. We don't have any power, but God, our eyes are on you. And God delivers them. But whether he delivered them or not, the prayer was, God, you are able and we trust you. Our eyes are settled on you. Or in Luke chapter 22, as we look forward to a greater king, our king, who in the garden of Gethsemane, Sweats, great sweat drops of blood is in agony. He prays. And in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But again, he doesn't stop there. He looks past the the agony that he feels and, and the agony of knowing what's before him to faith. In the Father, whom he's always trusted. And his prayer ends with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours. Or, or yet not my will, but yours be done. And because he trusted his Father, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We see this also, though, in Philippians 
There are the repeated commands to rejoice. But Paul does not give the command without also giving the ground upon which you can sink the anchor of your faith. It comes throughout the letter, but just consider this one familiar verse in chapter 1 and verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Therefore, Philippians, rejoice. I'm rejoicing. You should rejoice because this is who God is and this is what He will do. So therefore, rejoice. Joy comes from delighting in God or perhaps a better way to say it, a more accurate way is this. Joy is the expression of delight in God. And the Christian has so much ground to delight in. We look at God and as, as you look at Him, believer, what aspect of His person or His work can you look at and think, well, joy over here, yeah, but right there, I'm not so sure about that. You know, we can look at ourselves and, and maybe there are areas of strength, imperfect, but still, you know, someone asks you to list your strengths, but then list your weaknesses. And, and there are both. <laughs> there are character flaws. There's stuff that needs to be worked on. But then you look away to God and there's nothing to work on. There's nothing that needs to be perfected. It's already all perfected. It's been perfect from eternity past. And it's not diminishing. He can't talk about, you know, when I was younger, I could do that, but I can't do it anymore. Everything he's always been able to do, he's still able to do, and he'll always be able to do it. There's no diminishing. There's no growth. There's no diminishing. He's perfect in all his ways. And so you look at the person of God and the character of God, and if we think aright, we look at it and we see nothing but reasons for joy. Especially the believer, because again, the, the law's loud thunderings have been removed, and the reasons for a, you know, a servile fear have been removed. And so we look to God and we see perfection that's all turned in favor toward us. And our hearts have reason to leap with joy. And then we look at things that He says are true of Him toward us. Again, things that if He didn't say them, you'd think, you, you made that up and maybe you should even be ashamed of yourself for saying something like that. But God speaks like this in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 9 is, as Moses is talking to the people about you know, his home going and what they're to do moving forward. He writes, Then the Lord your God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hand, in the offspring of your body, and in the offspring of your cattle, and in the produce of your ground. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as He rejoiced over your fathers. He rejoiced over your fathers. He will rejoice over you. And what sweet words those must have been to the children of Israel after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and seeing their fathers all die. Or Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love he will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. God, rejoice over me? That's what the Scriptures say. Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. And then Isaiah 44, 23 turns to the creation and says, in response to God's redemption, here's what you should do. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel He shows forth His glory. And then when God sends His Son to the earth... For the purpose of redemption, His coming is trumpeted by the angels as good news of great joy. 
And as we see God's love most clearly demonstrated at the cross, as he redeems, we also see his joy most clearly demonstrated there. And in the sending of his son and the work of his son, we see it in the father. We see it even more clearly in the God man as he comes. And with all that Christ does to tend toward our joy as he faces the cross, in John 15, he pulls his disciples aside and he prepares them. And he says to them in verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's on his heart as he prepares for the cross. I want you to have my joy. I want your joy to be full. Richard Baxter wrote, All Christ's ways of mercy tend to and end in the saints' joys. He wept, suffered, sorrowed that they might rejoice. He sends the Spirit to be their comforter. He multiplies promises. He discovers their future happiness that their joy may be full. He abounds to them in mercies of all sorts. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He leads them by the still waters. Yea, He opens to them the fountain of living waters that their joy may be full. Everything Christ does as our mediator is so that you, Christian, may have His joy and that your joy may be full. So tell me, is it unreasonable for the Apostle Paul to turn to you or to me and say, keep on rejoicing? But my circumstance, I know it, but keep on rejoicing. My temperament i know it but keep on rejoicing because your mediator has labored that you may be full of joy and that you may rejoice as his work is accomplished and people are brought into his kingdom they are brought into a kingdom that is not defined by eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is a kingdom of joy, among other things, but it is a kingdom of joy. And as Paul closes his letter to the Romans, he writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God has provided this. May He fill you with this and give you the joy that comes in believing. Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We look to Him, and our hearts are filled with joy and hope in believing and as He is constant, unchanging, we have a constant foundation for joy. The next thing, and here's where we're going back to Nehemiah. And I'm not pulling a Mr. Roberts. For those of you who don't know, Mr. Roberts likes to give you a 40-minute introduction before his two-hour sermon and say that time doesn't count. He gets to the end of his introduction and say, now you can start your watch, right? I'm not pulling a Mr. Roberts, even though we're just now getting to Nehemiah. This next thing, though, is this, this thing that Nehemiah says about the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy as the believer's strength. And as you're turning there, let me give you a bit of context to what Nehemiah is, is conveying here. The people have returned from Babylonian captivity. Some years have passed by this point. They have finally rebuilt the walls at Nehemiah's urging. But it's been a long time. They've rebuilt the walls. They've gathered together to celebrate that. But also, there is the, the first day of the seventh month, which is the beginning of uh, a period of feast for them. The first one being this Feast of Booths, Booths, which is a time to rejoice as God has led them out of the Exodus and preserved them through the wilderness wanderings. So it's, it's a time for joy. It's a celebration. There are times to, to 
remember your sin and to repent. This was not one of those. This was a time to rejoice at God's deliverance. So there's the deliverance, not only from Exodus, but the deliverance from the Babylonian captivity that in a sense has finally come to an end with the rebuilding of the walls. And we're about to finally get started back to doing what we should have been doing for years now. As they pick up the, the feast days again, the law is brought out and it's read from early in the morning to midday and everybody who can understand is gathered to listen. They pay attention. They worship God, but they also weep. I believe they're weeping because they, they hear things that remind them of their father's sins that led them into captivity, but also their sin. They hear things they should have been doing that they haven't been doing. There's all this information given to them and there are reasons to repent and to sorrow. Then Ezra in verse 10 says to them, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And here, I don't believe it is God's joy over you. That's your strength. Although that is wonderful. And we've just looked at several verses that express that. But here, it's your joy in the Lord. Your joy in the work of God is a strength to you. And there's something wonderfully practical here. Ezra, as he tells them not to grieve, but to rejoice, is not saying that there's never a time for being grieved or for weeping. We've already kind of talked about how those two things don't have to be exclusive of one another. But he's also not saying there's never a time to, to weep over your own sin. There is a time for that. He was saying this is not the time for that because of the time that it is. It's a holy day set aside for a purpose. And conviction of sin should cause godly sorrow. But one of the points that we could draw here, and we'll get to the next one in just a second, the bigger one, but one is this, while sorrow is necessary, a necessary component of, of repentance, of seeing our sin, sorrow is never a place to get stuck. And if you only come to sorrow and you never get past sorrow, then I'm not sure you can call your sorrow godly sorrow. Because godly sorrow leads to repentance. Sorrow, again, is not an end. It's a step on the path, but we're moving toward God in repentance. So feel sorrow, yes, but don't hang out there. Don't get stuck there and think, I feel sorry, so that's the end of it. Well, no. Feel your sorrow and let it drive you to God and plead with Him for forgiveness. But the second part, which here, I think, is, is the idea is that this was a holy day set aside for rejoicing over God's deliverance. So a lot of mourning really didn't fit with the day and its purpose. But there is, again, a practical aspect. So they called together to celebrate. How are they going to celebrate if they're, if they're grieving, if they're mourning, if they're you know, weeping over sin? If the people had continued in their grief, it would not have been a celebration. Not that day. When you are overcome with sorrow, what happens to your energy? I mean, are, are you energized to get up and get after it if you're you know, just overwhelmed with sorrow? This was a day for eating and drinking and and sharing with others who didn't have. What happens to your appetite when you are overcome with sorrow? Do you, you just eat everything in sight? I mean, you may kind of medicate yourself that way, but, but you know, generally speaking, if you're full of sorrow, does your, do, you, do you look at a feast and think, oh, that looks good, I can't wait to sit down and, and eat? Or do you just think, I don't feel like eating? When you are full of sorrow, do you want to be around other people to celebrate? Usually when we're filled with grief, we want to withdraw. We don't want to be around other people. We don't want to interact with others. We don't want 
you know, leave me alone. Grief often immobilizes. We shrink away from people and responsibilities. And sorrow is so often accompanied by the what ifs. And they're always the negative what ifs. What if this happens? Oh, what if that happens? Oh, no, it's going to be even worse. It could be this. But joy is the opposite of that. Joy is strength. And especially when it's real joy, joy derived from the right source. When we're joyful, we are energized. You can see this in so many ways that have nothing to do with, with Nehemiah chapter 8. You know, you start a new job, and how often are you kind of energized by that? You know, the possibilities. And maybe a few days into it, you see all the possibilities are attached and, you know, joy's gone, but at least for that first day or two, right? Or school, new school year. Kids excited, teachers excited, ask them about Christmas time, though, about how excited they are about school, you know. Nobody's excited about school by that time. We, we feel energy, though, at something new. There's a joy. And with that joy comes energy. With that joy comes the desire to be around people more so than, than otherwise. You may still just not be a you know, real people person, but, but more so than if you don't feel joy, if you're full of sorrow. We tackle responsibilities, and even if the what-ifs come, how often are the what-ifs positive? You know, this could work. What if God does that? And we just look at all of life differently. Everything is viewed differently. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan's battle against the Philistines? Just him and his armor bearer. In chapter 13, his father Saul and, and what passed for an army have gathered and the armies of the Philistines are coming and amassing around them. And again, it's one of those situations where humanly speaking, there is no hope. There's so many Philistines and so few Israelites. Saul's supposed to wait on Samuel and Samuel, under the direction of the Lord, delays and delays and delays and people start disappearing. The, the army starts disappearing. So finally, Samuel starts to offer the sacrifice himself. And of course, that's when Samuel shows up. I said Samuel, didn't I? Saul starts to offer it himself. You keep reading, though, and you find that in the army of Israel, the only weapon, the only sword, the only spear belongs to Saul and to Jonathan. Nobody else has a sword or a spear because the Philistines won't let them have them. There's no blacksmith in Israel. If you want your plow sharpened, you have to go see a Philistine and pay him for it. So I guess, you know, they're carrying sticks. And Jonathan looks at all of that and he turns to his armor bearer and says, why don't we go over there and see what, what will happen? And they have to climb down a rocky crag and climb up another one to get to them. But he says in 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. The Lord's not restrained to save by many or by few. His father's looking at all the people disappearing, the lack of weaponry, the mess that's about to occur. Jonathan says, God's not restrained by many or few. Let's go see what he'll do. There's such a vast difference between a joyful believer and a sorrowful believer. Which one praises God? I don't mean sorrow but joy also. I mean sorrow like I'm overcome with sorrow and joy has gone out the door and I can't seem to find it. Which one praises God? Which one will endure suffering? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul gives us one of those little snippets of, of his suffering. There he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. 
persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then Philippians 2.17, which we've already looked at, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Which one endures suffering? The one who is overcome by sorrow or the one who rejoices in the goodness of God? The, what God delights in, whether you like the circumstances or not. This joy, joy in the Lord, is a great, great strength. Now, make two applications and we'll be done. First, for the Christian, there are two dangers regarding joy that you must be aware of. The first is the danger of false joy. The danger of rejoicing over that which you have no business rejoicing over. It's, it's the glorying in your shame of Philippians chapter 3. It's celebrating weakness, uh, wickedness. It, it's reveling in sin. But it doesn't have to be bold and audacious. It, it can be as simple as laughing at wickedness. Wickedness that you yourself would never participate in. It can be joy in life's pleasures without any reference to God. So things that are legitimate, that God has provided for you, if you include God in it, if you have gratitude to God for it, joying in that would be perfectly acceptable. But because you have no reference to God in your joy in that, it's not acceptable. It's a counterfeit joy. You've removed the giver from the gift. And this kind of false joy is a danger because it is without reference to God. But there's a second danger, and that's the danger of no joy. Not rejoicing when you have every reason to rejoice. Now, our joy is not constant. Though the foundation is constant, God's unchanging, we're not. But there's still this command to keep on rejoicing. And we must take seriously scriptures like James 1 2, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Look at it, see it for what it is, see who God is, consider it joy, reckon it, put it in perspective. We take seriously the commands of the Lord to rejoice that we've already looked at. Believing that He has commanded it. It's not optional. It is possible. And then we can also heed the wise counsel of Sibs that as Christians, joy is either the state our soul is in or the state for which we're to be laboring to be in. If we believe that that is what God commands us, then it's got to be one of those. Anything else is to be repented of. Be joyful. Labor to be joyful. And how do you labor? By considering God. By considering Christ. Remembering Him. His faithfulness. His work. Then second. There is no other source of true joy. Any other joy is without foundation. Any other joy is to be repented of. Any other joy is built on sinking sand. This is true for the Christian who foolishly looks elsewhere for joy. But it's also true for the unbeliever who has no other place to look. If they won't look to God, where are you looking? Well, you have to be looking to self or to someone else or to the world for some fading pleasure that cannot really give you joy. John Newton said it this way. We sang it just a little bit ago. Fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. It's fading. It's crumbling. It's, it's falling apart around you. It's full of regrets. But for the believers, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. Unbeliever. That may be where you are today. But it's not where you have to stay. Jesus gives life. And to his children, he says, 
I speak these things to you so that your joy may be full. So that you have my joy and your joy may be made full. His children, though imperfect, have been proving him true ever since. To those who want to know him, God's word says you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You can come to Jesus, but you have to come empty. You can't come with your hands full of self or the world. You can't come with your own joys and hang on to them as if they're something worthy to present to God. You have to come empty. But listen, if you come empty, you find Him. And finding Him, He gives you His joy. And your joy can be made full. I'll read the doxology that Jude writes. And then we'll be seated for just a moment of silence. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.